And what I'd like to do is um, work out something together with you that I find problematic. And then it's something about Abraham Avinu. Now we know that we tend to idolize Abraham Avinu. Part of that is, is due to the way the Rambam describes him. The Rambam sees Avram Avinu as being a man with an idea. And that was the, and that idea determined his life, how he lived and what he did. And that he points out that God called Avram Avinu Ohavi, my beloved, right? Avram Avinu was something special. And of course we understand, okay, Dat Yitzchak and all the other uh, things that Avram went through in order to prove his devotion to God. No one has ever had to do that, you know, before. No one had to do it before, and no one did it since. And yet there is one story about Avram Avinu that I personally find difficult to understand. And that story is found at the end of Parashat Hayei Sarah, and is the first... Um, the first, uh, the first uh, source of the sheep. Let's go through it, right? Let's go through the source. By Yosef Abraham, So the Torah tells us a story for no apparent reason that Abraham Avinu had another wife besides his first wife, whose name was Hagar, or the, the first wife's name was Sarai, and then his second wife's name was Hagar. And with Hagar he had a son whose name was Yishmael. And then Sarai became Sarah. So sort of metaphorically, she's the next wife. Right? She's the same person, but she has a new name. And with this new wife, Sarah, Abraham had a son whose name was Yitzchak, who turned out to be worthy, worthy of, uh, of Abraham. He was a son who was worthy of Abraham. And then, finally, he has a last wife. And that last wife is introduced to us in this uh, parasha, the Yosef Abraham, Ushima Keturah. Keturah. Now, Rashi, Chazal, somehow didn't like this idea. What was it? What do you mean he has another wife? How does she fit into the story? And, and, and if she doesn't fit into the story, why does the Torah take the trouble to tell us about her? So Rashi adjusts the story somewhat. Rashi, of course, you know when we read Rashi, we're talking about Chazal. We're talking about the tradition, right, of interpretation. So Rashi says, Keturah, Zohagah. No, 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 Rashi says. Keturah is a woman, is a new name for an old woman, right? The old lady is Hagar. That's wife number two, the way we counted them, right? Sarai, Hagar, Sarah, and now Keturah equals Hagar, according to Rashi. So Rashi connects the name Keturah, to the Hebrew word ketoret, which is an incense offering and, and provides a very uh, nice smell 
in the Beit HaMikdash. The Rambam says, in fact, in the Moron of Buchim, the Rambam says that that smell covered up the smell of blood and gore and things flowing around in the Beit HaMikdash, which you could imagine if you were ever in an old-time butcher store, that, you know, you'd like go around spritzing the spray all the time to try to avoid the smell. So that's the Ketoret. Who's this woman? Who's this woman, wife number four? According to our accounting, Hagar. Where's Hagar? Where did she come from in this whole story? So Rashi adds that, uh, first he says, you know why they called her Keturah? Why, why did they call her Hagar? If it's Hagar. So the answer is that if the name, if they would have used her name Hagar, the Torah would have used the name Hagar, we wouldn't have known. What wouldn't we have known? that she is a very special person and she has a very special way of doing things. Just like the Ketorah gives you the advice, feeling so too did uh, the Hagar. And you should know that part of her special nature was that she had no relations with any man since she left uh, since she left Avram Avinu. So Avram Avinu is remarrying a woman who he sent away and with whom he had a child uh, uh, because of her unique piety. That's what Rashi said. So like if you just erase all the things that Rashi added to the story uh, you see what the problems are. What was special about her? And why did the Torah have to mention it? And what was the point of it? And all those questions are in the answer. Rashi says, no, no. This was a shidduch made in heaven. She was something special. She wasn't Jewish. And she had Yishmael as a son. But she was still something, she was still something special. Then the psukim go on, but tailored low, she had children. At Zimran, at Yakshan, at Medan, at Midyan, at Yishpat, and sure, I would love to hear if any of you have ever heard any of these names mentioned at a Brit Milah that you attended. <laughs> right? So even though, even though she was this righteous woman and worthy of Avram Avinu in some way, and she produced many children, Right, at least another joke. None of those names have become part of our tradition of naming. So, what? People do use Hagar. People use Hagar? Hagar. Hagar is the name. Oh, Hagar. Yeah, you know, today. Today. Today, we don't, so not so careful about that. Not everybody is willing to say. Names of idolatry shouldn't be used for children, but you know it goes by the by the musical. If you like the way it sounds, you might use it. That's an Israeli invention. In the old days, they were more careful about that. But in any event, there are all these kids, there are all these children, and then pasuk dalit says and so she was like, uh, what do you call that? A very fertile, very fucking. She had a lot of children with Avramavino. So what about all these children? What about all these wives? What about what about all this? What about? 
So, listen to this pasuk. What are we up to? Pasuk hey. Pasuk hey. So here's Avraham. Avraham remarried her. Avraham had all these children. Apparently, Sarai, Sarah didn't have any more children after after Yitzchak. So it says in pasuk, it's pasuk hey. It seems, I don't know what you'd call it. What about the other children? What do we call Hashem Loli Yitzchak? According to the Torah, the halacha is that the Bechor <coughs> gets to Yishnai. So we don't know what happens to Yishnai. Shmuel is gone, at least temporarily. So maybe he only had these children. He had Yitzchak. And all the Benek Torah. So according to the Torah, every child gets an equal share, except for the Bechorah gets Pishnai. So if you have ten children, you divide your property into eleven parts, the older one gets two parts, and everybody else gets one part. But here, Avram Avinu seems to be contradicted. Why do I say this? I mean, Chazal understood always that the Ovos, what makes them Ovos? What makes the Ovos Ovos? Well, one of the things is, that they were able to intuit what God wanted of them. It's true they didn't have the Torah, the Torah was given to Har Sinai, but they had this way of accommodating God's wish. That's what they were. They were people who lived with a great sensitivity to God's will. Those are the Avot. So here Amravidu is denying a principle stated in the Torah that each of the children should inherit. Besides that, Besides that, it says in the next passage, <laughs> So here, again, what are they called, all these children? B'nei HaPilakshin. What is B'nei HaPilakshin? Well, they're not exactly the, the wife of Avram Avinu. In other this Keturah was not introduced to us as a Pilegesh, as a maid servant of some kind, or a concubine. She was introduced to us as somebody that, it says, what does it say in the positive, Yosef, Abraham, Vayikach. What is Vayikach? It's the verb that's used in the Torah in Sefer Dvarim for marriage. So first, Keturah is introduced to us as like a regular person, a woman who Abraham married. He had many children with her. And then it says, then it says, that they weren't his regular children, but they were second class children. They were, un, uh, they were not part of the family, really, because there's a wife and there's a Pelegish. And these were the children of the Pelegish, that's what it says. Furthermore, it says that Avramavino, Avramavino, gave everything to Yitzchak. He gave the children of the Pilegesh, of the Pilegesh, he gave them Matanot. What's Matanot? Gifts. What? Gifts. I understand, but what is it? What is a gift? Like if somebody gives me a little box with a ribbon on it? No, it's a spiritual gift, I heard. And what is what? Well, 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 well. I heard it. The religion of the Faris, like Buddhism and, and the religion of the Faris. Ah, he gave it. Yeah? 
I don't remember my source. Well, we'll see in a minute that there is a source, but not for the Far East. But for this idea, there is a source. So, so uh, uh, let me just see what Avramavinu did. He gave Matanot. We don't know what that is. We don't know, right? It was used to say that. I like it, but we don't know. It. Yes. We don't know it for reading, reading the Chumash. The Chumash is Matanot. Now you, he could have given them a little box with uh, with a little piece of jewelry in it. He could have given them a big car. Everybody gets a big car so they could leave in peace. You know, we'll let the Avramavinu. And then it says. It says that Avram Avinu, it says in the Pasuk, Vayishal Chay Me'al Yitzchak Bino, Bodenu Chay, Boden Vayishal Chay. What does Vayishal Chay mean? And he sent them away. Now you remember that Avram Avinu was the one who didn't want to send Yishmael away, who didn't think that Sarai was in her rights by trying to send him out to the middle of nowhere. That was not an acceptable position for Avram Avinu. And here Avram Avinu is sending away all his own children. He sent them away Avram Avinu is still alive. He's still alive and still kicking and still have an obligation to educate his children and to help them out. But Avram Avinu sends them away happily Kedma, Eretz Kedem. Kedma, what does Kedma mean? Kedma is to the east. To the east of Eretz Yisrael. Agrabin himself went west from Urkastim to Eretz Yisrael, right? No? Believe me, it's west. Not exactly west, but you know, between west and north, it's west. So Agrabin himself went west. And he told his own children to go out, to leave his house, and to go east. Which is sort of like, symbolically, sounds like it means, go back to where I came from. And what is doing where I came from? What's doing? Avodah right? Avodah you mentioned, I remember telling his own children they should go east. What? Chabad. <laughs> everything, everything is like Chabad. Chabad <laughs> is everywhere. It's everywhere and everything. <laughs> I never heard that. <laughs> so I've been here and I've been there in Chabad, and they never told me that they had they owned other uh, machines. Uh, but I'm sure they would like to. Anyway, look at this. So, I mean, before we were talking about she was his wife, who 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 her, so he married her. Didn't now, I say I, that? I, I, yes, he said it. But so, well, but then he says he's referring to them as pilakshin. But is is she supposed to be a, a pilagish, or she's supposed to be his wife? Are you do you remember what you learned in Cheder when you were a little kid? Yeah. Well, this is what you learned in Chayda. You ready? Yeah. Yeah, Rashi says on that Pasuk, and you look at the Rashi, look at the Rashi here on uh, a Pasuk Vav. See, B'nei Apilachim? B'nei Apilachim. Chaser Ketiv. Now, this is a problem. Rashi says Chaser. What does Chaser mean when you talk about grammar? Missing. What? What's missing? A uterine What? A uterine Or a hay sometimes. 
In other words, there are letters in Hebrew that are used instead of vowels. If I say anything you don't understand, don't say a word. <laughs> Just swallow it. Hebrew is a, is a language that's written without vowels. Only sometimes there are what they used to call vowel letters. Letters that take the place of a vowel. Like a yud and a vav and sometimes aleph, hey, vav, yud. Which is called by, you know, kids who have to be in the misery of learning grammar. They call it a heavy. Those are the four letters that are considered to be like vowels. What's a vowel? Well, it's not a consonant. What's a consonant? It's not a vowel. So, from our point of view, a, a vowel letter is a letter that just tells you how to pronounce it, but doesn't tell us what the word is. They're sort of extra. In time, took many, many years, we taught ourselves a language of vowels, right? You have two dots, three dots, and O, and U, and E, and all that is a language of vowels that we taught ourselves at about, until about the seventh century, it got, it got kind of solidified. In fact, at that time, there were different systems. There were different systems that were in use. Right? There's one system that's called Eretz Yisrael, the other system is called Tiberia, and the third system is called Bavel. Three systems. But they all did the same thing. Rather than the one that won, the system that won was called Tiberia. So that in all the books that are vocalized here, like you see in the Psukim, the Psukim are, uh, are vocalized. Those who are vocalized. That vocalization doesn't exist in the Sefer Torah. So Rashi says Chatser. So if you look at our Patsuk, Right, you look at our pasuk, pasuk vav. It says bnei apilachim. There's a yud after the pei. You see the yud after the pei, mm-hmm. and then there's another yud after the shin. Mm-hmm. Those two yudim are called vowels. Mm-hmm. And Rashi, Rashi knew about a, a text of the Torah where apparently the first yud was missing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't there. So Rashi says chatzektiv, meaning let's say in some places. That yud is missing. And therefore, Shaloita Ella Pilegishakat. He hagar he ktura. That yud, that missing yud reminds us, according to Rashi, in other words, there's no connection between the Drasha and the missing yud. It just says the missing yud is a coded way of reminding us that there's only one one woman that we're referring to. Right, why does it say Pilak Shin, which looks like a plural? Right. Rashi didn't exactly explain that. No. But Rashi says, Rashi says very clearly that Pilak Shin refers to one person, and that one person's name was Ketura, or Hagar. And therefore, does that make Rashi better, or does that make Amravidu better or worse? I don't know, but he has a lot of wives and a lot of children, so okay, you know, he can't deal with the situation. But if the mother is Keturah, if she is righteous, so why did Moshe, why did Abraham have to kick them out? Why did he send them away? That I don't really understand. The last Rashi, Natana Abraham Matanot, you see Matanot? The last Rashi. 
Rashi, the Tereshu Rabbeinu, there's a Gemara in Sanhedrin, Tzadi Aleph of Medalef. Right? You see? How do I know that Sanhedrin, Tzadi Aleph of Medalef? Because it says so. But you wouldn't be able to say. You'd have to look it up. Because that's the thing with references. They're often wrong. But this one has to be right. Sadi Aleph of Medalef and Sanhedrin, Shem Tum'ah Matak Lahem. This is like a series of words that have nothing to do with each other. You know, you ever come up with that kind of thing? People think like there's a sentence with words and you don't know what one word has to do with the other. Shame Tuma. A name Tuma. Unclean. Unacceptable. Unworthy. Idolatrous. Any of those kinds of interpretations might be correct. Shame Tuma. Masala. He gave them a shame Tuma. He gave them all the other children. All the other children are changed shame to Ma, Matalahem, that's the Matanot. So what does Matanot mean? He gave it to them. But it doesn't tell you what he gave to them. What he gave to them was a shame to Ma, according to the Gemara. That's what Rashid says. Rashid says, I don't care if you don't understand what, it's, what it means. This is the answer to your question. Why was it that Abraham Abinu did this? Because he wanted to give them a shame to Ma. Why is it called Matanot? I don't know. Why couldn't the Gemara, why couldn't the Chumash say shame to Mama Salah? Why does Chumash have to trick us and say Matanot? Okay. In other words, we have now learned what I think is a difficult Gemara, a difficult Chumash with Rashi. Uh, does Rashi say anything else? Rashi, Rashi. Ah, Dabar Acher. You know who Dabar Acher is? On the other hand. On the other hand. On the other hand. Like, yeah, but why would Rashi say that? Because he's what? not happy with. Oh, he's not happy for Rashi. He's not happy. Now he says the Barachim get happy. You know that wine he was making? The wine that Rashi said he took a drink, a big drink of wine. Happy <laughs> said the Barachim. The I don't think so. I have a more like existential way of uh, looking at it. That if you take the two Barachim together. You get a perush. That's also a perush. Davarachet <coughs> to me can't really mean I reject the first interpretation. Because the easiest way to reject the first interpretation is not to quote it. I mean, what do you have to quote it for and then reject it? To be but, honest. What? To be honest. To be honest? Yeah, yes, to say what in the way. No, there are a lot of uh, interpretations in the Madras that Rashi doesn't quote. Okay. Rashi doesn't, he's not obliged to quote everything that the Chachamim said. He himself says that. He rationally himself says that. So what is the Dabar Acher? I'm going to figure out someday how to get these glasses to work. Dabar Acher. Mashinitan lo aladot sarah l'shar b'chanot shemakim lo hakol natan lahem shalor tzalehem nofrehem. So matanot, when he gave to his children are called matanot. Why? Because he received them as Matanot. He, Avram Avinu, received the different points in his life. He went out to Egypt and then there was Elimelech and all those stories that when he left those places, they all gave him a lot of stuff. The kings gave him a lot of stuff. And that's called Matanot. The Matanot that he received were passed on to others, to his children. Why is that? Right? Hakol natan lahem shelo ratsa lahenot mihem. 
that actually had history been a little different, Abba wouldn't give them anything. Because anything that he received from God, he wanted to hold on to. He didn't want to give it away. But these matanot were received because the, 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 uh, the king of Egypt, or the king of, of, <coughs> of, the, uh, of uh, the king of Plishtim, were like nervous. They were nervous about their relationship. They saw that Abba had power, that God was there. Well, found favor in him, so they wanted to give him something. They gave him matanot. Avraham saw the opportunity to rid himself. Now, everybody should think that he received glory or wealth or from from these from these people. So he gave it away to his sons. So the first interpretation is shame to Masar Lahem that Avraham had something and he gave it to them. By giving it to them, he also got rid of it, the shame too much. He got rid of the shame too much from himself. And it could be that, uh, that this was left over from the days before Avraham Avinu understood all the things that he understood. I mean, he grew up in the house of idolater, of an idolater, right? Terror. <laughs> and so he may have had certain ideas, like he had them, but he wanted to get rid of them. So he gave them to those people, the sons of Keturah, who were apparently not interested in Avram Avinu's revelations. He couldn't convince them, for one reason or the other, that they should go in his path. So he sent them away, and when he sent them away, he gave, he gave them the Shem Tum'ah as a matana. Alternative interpretation, that uh, the matanot that he had received, he gave these children because he didn't want anybody to think that those kings somehow provided him with sustenance of any kind. That's what, that's where Avraham Avinu was. So the word matana, the word matana is cleverly chosen according to Rashi. It means something. It means a lot, matana. And, right, for example. For example, right? You know, all the things, all the things that Avraham Avinu could have shared with his children, to call them a matana, obviously demands interpretation. So we still don't know we still don't know what exactly happened. What do you mean, shame to ah? What do you mean that you give them all the things that you received as from, from the king of Egypt or the king of uh, the Philistine? What does it mean? I mean, you know, what was happening exactly? What was happening in Avraham Avinu's mind? So, I want to look at another few psukis. If you look at the second at the second source on the page, the second source on the page says, you know, this is about the Shirak Be'er. You know, there was a miracle with the water, and afterwards there was this poem that was written. Az Yashir Yisrael Ali Be'er, Enuli, Then B'nai Yisrael sang this song, right? So yeah, I, I can tell you what the words mean. Be'er is a well. Kafarua means they dug. Sarim, Sarim are, you know, important people, important personalities. Then Karuha l'divei amam. Karuha to dig it up. They digged up the the well. The divei amam, the uh, important people of the nation. Bimachokek bimish anotam. 
ומחוקק במשענותם, מחוקק is to chisel out something, or could be to make a rule, a law, chok, chok, chokak, right? In Hebrew, those two words are related to each other. One is law, and the other one is to chisel out of stone, to chisel out of, like say, a letter in the stone. Bimish anotam. Bimish anotam. What they lean on. What they lean on. And then it says, Umimidbar matana. Umimidbar matana, most people, most reasonable people, would say that this refers to a trip that they took in the desert. They went from a place called Midbar to a place called Matana. And the next Pasuk says, Umi Matana, Nakliyev, Umi Nakliyev, Bamot. So they went from Matana to Nakliyev, and from Nakliyev they went to Bamot. Umi Banot, Agei Hashem, Bistoye Dei Moab, Rosh HaPizkav, Nishkav HaPnei Shimon. So this is where they went. They went Midbar to Matana. From Matana to Nakliyev. They went to Bamot. The trouble is that neither Chazal nor the modern day geographers who are interested in such questions are able to tell us where these places are. They just don't exist. I don't mean that they don't exist today. Nothing exists today, but they don't exist in history. No one ever mentions them. There's no name. There's no name, place name that could be attributed to Nachaliev. There's no place name that could be attributed to Matana. You see that word Matana? You recognize it from somewhere? Mm-hmm. Oh, Hashem. <laughs> this has not been in vain. Mm-hmm. We have yeah. not to point. You what? We have not to point like Rashi. Rashi? So now look at what it says. Let's look at, at Targum Unculus. You see Unculus right next to it? Mm-hmm. Unculus usually is a very literal translation. A literal translation, by that I mean that there's usually a word-to-word correspondence. A word in the Hebrew text is translated by a word into Aramaic. It's very rare that Unculus deviates from that plan. Now, there's another Targum into Aramaic, which is called either the Yonatan ben Uziel or the Yushalmi or something. It's not Yonatan, but it should be called the Yushalmi. The right name is, which is much more agadic and deviates from this uh, simple plan that Unculus has. But it's important to remember that because we're going to look at a place where Unculus deviates. It's not what you would expect. So it says, B'nei Yisrael sang these the words of praises. Right? So let's go, uh, let's go to Pasuk. Just one second. Pasuk Yudchet at the end. You see, it says in the third line, not in the second line, Second line. Bira the Hafruta Rabbi Rabbi Vaya. The first word Bira means the air. 
a well. The Kafaruha means they dug it up. Ragavaya, the important people. Kruta, Reshe Amo. Those up to now, Ungulus is literal. He's explaining word for word what's written in the, in the uh, Pasuk. Now, it says, Bimichokek, in Hebrew, Bimichokek, Bimishanatan. Bimichokek, right? Reish Amo. Sefraya, Bechotrehon. Sefraya. Sefraya means books. What books? Bechotarehon. Do you remember Chadgadya? Chotar is a stick. Chutra. Chutra? Do you remember? Or you all sleep at that time? No, it's not good. Some people think that singing Chadgadya is very important. I'm not one of them. Chutraya. Where is it? The Chutrei home is their sticks, which in Chad Gadia used to beat with. You beat with your sticks, the Chutrei home, to Sifraya, the Chutrei home. And then it says, O Minidvara, you see that word Minidvara? No? Okay. He said, what does it translate? What's the Hebrew? Midbar, follow the next word, Matana. Midbar, Matana. What's it going to say? What's it going to say? Mimidbara, et yehivat lehom. Et yehivat lehom means he gave it to them. What did he give to them by Midbar? The Torah. Where's the Midbar? Harsinai. Where's Harsinai? Harsinai is the Midbar. So they're singing the praises when good things happen to Am Yisrael. Good things happen to Am Yisrael. It's a rule. They don't say, oh, I'm so happy. Good things just happened to me. What do they say? And God gave us the Torah and have the mitzvah. It's like we don't talk about the good of the moment. We talk about the greater good that we know about. That's how we sing praises to God. We say a little bit, okay, thank you, sir, I mean, it's right. But then we say, I am Rabbi Yonos. Everything becomes bigger and greater. It has to do with God's relationship to us. Now, Pasuk Yutet. You see Pasuk Yutet? It says, Me Matana Nathalie Ez. So like, Umede et yahivat lehon. Again, what does it mean to Yitri yahivat lehon? And he gave it to them. What did we think he gave to them? The Torah. But it says here, Umede yahivat lehon, Nachata in home. Nachata is a place to rest. Right? Gave them a place to rest. Le nachlaya. What's nachlaya? Nachalaya, it's hard to tell. Well, there's a Hebrew word, nachal, which means a river. But there's another Hebrew word called nachala. And what does nachala mean? Heritage. What? Heritage. No, nachala means your inherited land. That's what it refers to. Eretz Yisrael, nachala. So I could reinterpret all of this by saying that they were thankful to God after the miracle of the bear, or they're thankful about they were thankful about the fact that Amidbah, where they received the Torah, they were brought by God on the way to the Nachalah. They were brought by God on the way to Nachalah, and that's the word Matana. The word Matana here means, it's Yehivah God gave it to them. <coughs> so, I admit, I admit that it's not perfectly obvious, and I admit also that we can't really uh, determine 
what the situation was. But it seems to me that if we think of Matanot, if we think of Matanot as being the entree to Eretz Yisrael, which is what the Pasuk says in Bamidbar, the Pasuk that says, Mi Matana Nachaliel. From Matana, which refers to the Sefer Torah, they went on their way to Eretz Yisrael. So Avram Avinu, Avram Avinu is saying to all of his children, Avram is saying to all of his children, look, it's not, I, I mean, it's, it's true that you're not worthy. And therefore, I have to distinguish you from Yitzchak, who is worthy. But I tell you, I tell you that there's still hope for you. That's the matana, the matana that was given to the other sons of Avraham Avinu. And he said, if you go to the desert where the Torah will be given, you will be able to join up and become part of that, a part of that world. And he gave them, he gave them shame to us. He gave them shame to uh, to us. You know, as he tried to explain to them that belief in God implies distinctions that you are not willing to accept at the moment. What is Tuma, shame Tuma? It's a name that you can't say. It's a relationship that you can't have. It's not so much that idolatry is nothing. But it's rather that idolatry is something that you can't have anything to do with. And the shame to my gave them the shame to my in order to prove to them, that to show them what it is that they should stay away from. If they wanted to get integrated, they wanted to be part of the people who received the Torah, that's what they had to do. That was the matana. The matana was, as Uncle says in Bamibah, the matana of the Torah, which leads to the Nachalah. So even though Avram Avinu sent them away, and by sending away he said, you have no chalik, you my other children, have no chalik in the land of Israel. It's not yours. It all belongs to Yitzchak. But that sort of cruel position that Avram Avinu had was balanced by the fact that he taught them that they could rejoin, they could become part again of, of, uh, of Am Yisrael and re- regain a position in Eretz Yisrael and Nachama. And we see, we see that the Avot lived through different kinds of experiences that are relevant to us today. So you know that Yitzchak had two children, twins, Yaakov and Esau. And there was no way ever to bridge the gap between Yaakov and Esau. And the Ran says in the Trashot uh, Ran, he explains that that's the nature of brothers. Brothers who kind of mark out or determine or delineate a point which neither of them is good to ever cross, they can't fix that. That's unfixable, and that's what happened with Yaakov and Esau. And Esau became the model 
for the ultimate enemy. They're the ultimate destroyers of Am Yisrael, even before Iran. And uh, and Esau, that was Rome, that represents the diaspora, never uh, uh, never changed its position about er, about Am Yisrael. And you know that the Nitziv wrote a book, I put a parish on Shira Shirin, which is actually a, a, his uh, description of anti-Semitism. Because where does anti-Semitism come from? It comes from the fact that Yaakov and Esau were never ever able to make peace each with the other. And that was what happened with Yaakov and Esau. But with the children of with the children of Abraham, there was an opportunity to return. And we know that for some reason when the Jews left Mitzrayim, the Jews left Mitzrayim, who came with them? What the Torah calls Erevrat. What's Erevrat? Well, the, the people don't belong there. They're all the people who shouldn't be there. So why were they there? I mean, why didn't Moshe Rabbeinu go around and ask for their electronic uh, uh, you know, passports? And if it rang a bell, it threw them out. Why did they let them in? So this is the legacy from Avram Avinu. That everybody can get in. Everybody can become re- can return. But there's another legacy. Right, the legacy of Yaakov, that Yaakov and Esau can never get together. And you know that one of the children of Esau was, uh, he was there at the Brismila, he went there at the club, Amolek. One of the children of Esau is Amolek, and you know that no one ever called their child ever Amolek. That would be a bit difficult. What? He's what? I didn't hear, sorry. Grandchildren. Oh, it's better. Maybe. I wasn't there either. So, so this idea, this idea that's represented by the Avot, and on the one hand, everybody can return to the fold, even people who rejected it, even people like the children of Hagar. And that's why, that's why the Torah emphasizes the story, because part of the legacy of Avram Avinu is that everybody can get it. Everybody can get into it, so to speak. Everybody can be a part of it. And there's another story. The story about Yaakov and Esau. Of course, it may be true that uh, that, that could also be redeemed somehow, but not easily. That's a, different, that's a different story. Maybe next week. So the story of Keturah was very important because Avram Avinu understood and Avram Avinu tried to teach is understanding. But what about those who didn't get it? What about those who could not uh, make the standard of Ravina? Well, they still have a chance. And you know, the Medrash says that before HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave the Torah to B'nai Yisrael, he went around and asked all the nations that they want the Torah. Okay, they said no, each one for some reason, but you understand that the story implies that you have to ask the question. You can't automatically assume that if your great-great-great-grandfather was one of the B'nai Keturah that you wouldn't be interested. Adirah. You have to assume and try and work to get people, to get people interested. That's true as a, as a postscript, I would say. There's an unfortunate uh, you know, argument today about, about Giyur. 
some would say that to become a ger, you have to be a tzaddik yisod olam. It was most, uh, many Jews in the world are Jews, but they're not as careful as the Rabbanut wants the gerim to be about anything. It seems to me to be a little odd. I mean, how could somebody who's coming to join, who at least theoretically doesn't know too much about it, uh, how can we expect him to be on a higher level than somebody who's lived in it for a hundred generations? But that's what we do, for some reason. I think it's part of our general suspicion and fear about, about outsiders. We Jews, you know, we Jews, we Jews in Yerushalayim. It's not Zion Trump. He has no fear. But we, here in Yerushalayim, uh, we're afraid, we're always afraid of, uh, we're, we're suspicious. Right? In the higher political levels, we're suspicious. At the international uh, uh, discussion level, we're, we're, we're suspicious about people <coughs> who say they want to join us. But this may not be the way the B'nai Keturah were treated by Avram Avinu, who was very much open to the idea that people will join, will see the light, and will come aboard. Have a good chance. And, and what is the source of the word the source for the B'nai Keturah? Me? No, 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 no. You said the word the source Oh no, that the shame Tum'ah is obviously from other religions. That's what I meant. I didn't mean specifically Buddhism. Ah, so, but there is no source which says that. I don't think so. I don't think so. Oh, you mean to go further east? I meant yeah. east to the desert. Uh, no, there's, there's some, and there's some that say that uh, Brahmin is the Hindu god Brahmin. It sounds a lot yeah, like Abraham. Yeah, that's Abraham. And uh, there's a lot of like Hebrew uh, mixed in. And that's why I said Hebrew is Catholic as well. That's a chance. Why Jews are attractive? Yeah, you Well, you know that in the '60s, which is where I come from. Yeah. <laughs> well, most of the most most of the Buddhist leaders were Jewish. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, the leaders, not the ones who just came along for the ride. So, uh, you know, Jews are always willing to try something. No, but I studied Buddhism extensively, and it's very much like Hasidun. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there aren't that many things you could try to be. You could try to be happy. You could try to be sad. You could try to think the future means something. You think it doesn't mean anything. You think the depression doesn't mean anything or it does mean something. That's it. That's what you've got. So you can find in Hasidus, you can even find a few Litvaks who are like that. Not many, I admit, but you can find them. Uh, but it seems to have petered out. I mean, I don't know what you think. You don't think it's petered out? No? I remember in the yeshiva, we used to have guys all the time who came from uh, ashrams. And as time passed, they were always very hungry, these <coughs> ashram people. And uh, they liked the yeshiva because they got a meal every day at the same time. Which I guess in the ashram they didn't get. I mean, I'm not, I was never in an ashram, but I guess. Um, recently, everybody became, in the 60s, there was this 
situation, I'll tell you this my feeling of sociology. In the, in the 60s, you could go to college for free. Not only could you go to college for free, but if you went to like uh, UCLA in Santa Cruz, they gave you three credits for sitting on the beach. Yeah, right. And then another three credits for swimming. <laughs> so, so it wasn't so, it wasn't so uh, difficult. Really. You went for free and you got your credits and you got a degree. And you didn't have to be sober at any time in between. It was, it was like a different world. It was a wondrous world. And then the banks said, well, someone's got to pay for all this. And all at once, uh, they said, you want to go to college, you have to pay. You can take a loan, which at the beginning, the guys who were all zonked out on drugs didn't understand that if you took a loan, you had to pay it back. But then they figured it out. It took a couple of years, so you had to take a loan, you had to pay it back. That was the end of the drug culture. Because you couldn't get a job if you weren't awake. It's all like everything's connected to everything else. It all started in Colombia. Right? Colombia had riots. In Colombia, they didn't care if you had riots in South Dakota. But Colombia? Colombia had a riot. That can't be. So, uh, I, th- I think it's sort of like, it's sort of over. Initially, guess every day there was another book that was published on the glories of meditation and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, Buddhism. Interesting. It's all, it's, so I don't think it's all the same. I don't think it's all the same because it's, in Judaism it's become a very halachic. And halacha makes a differentiation. You, know, you always have to think, Jews have to always think about what they're doing. It's the opposite of a more meditative culture where what you're interested in is not thinking about anything. No, that's why I'm saying it's more like Hasidut, which they... Hasidut, they don't think about anything. Could be. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about Hasidut. I only know about books written okay, by Hasidic masters. <laughs> Have a good show.